Welcome to the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Leday. I am Boomer. Hi, I'm Allie. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. You know that thing when you like recommend movies to your friends and they say, oh, okay, I'll check that out. And you know they're not going to. This is the show where we actually have accountability and we make each other watch movies. I've been, I've been trying to think of a way to describe what this is. I, I think that's probably the, the start and end of it. I'd like to thank everyone out there in listener land for all of their glorious birthday wishes that they sent to me. It's going to be a strange new experience being 23, but I'm really <laughs> looking forward to seeing what the next year brings. Are you going to change your online handle to Forever 23? Is that the next step in your evolution? No, I just like to keep people guessing. I, I know that um, <laughs> I've previously mentioned uh, enjoying the match game because I have a, a favorite match game panel. And I know that that makes me seem like I must be in my 60s because the match game has not been on television in any watchable form since like 1979. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I, I enjoy the match game, uh, but I also um, know what the kids liked up until about 10 years ago. Well, I'm seeing in the group chat that you got some Star Trek memorabilia for your birthday. I did. My friend Zach, my dear friend Zach, got me a... Uh, he works at a used bookstore. Uh, it's Half Price Books. We are not sponsored. Uh, he works at Half Price Books and various ephemera that's not necessarily books or media come through there from time to time. I once sold a painting of Batman, but someone had <laughs> sold through Half Price Books uh, an autographed photo of Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan, and it's great. I am just waiting until my Michael's order arrives so I can put it in a frame and put it on my wall. And you were telling us uh, before we started that you also had some partying that you did in person? Yes, I did. Uh, you know, everyone... Uh, tested negative. No, just kidding. Everyone has been vaccinated uh, <laughs> before. I w there were a couple of my friends that I was like, hey, what's your vax status? And they were like, oh, I'm going next week to get my first dose. I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, I won't that you won't be able to come to the party. But whenever it warms up a little, we'll have a swim day. So yeah, um, it, it was a great birthday. I got to see some friends that I had not seen since even a year before we went into lockdown just because you know, that's the way it happens sometimes where you're like planning to visit and planning to visit and things keep coming up. So my very sweet friend, uh, Danny, came to town and stayed for the birthday and through the night. And that was great. And various other friends, some of whom I have not seen or even some of them have been even difficult to get a hold of electronically since uh, lockdown first started. So it was a really wonderful time. That's really nice. Uh, for that reason, I have not watched as many movies um, as I normally would have in preparation for this. But I will say, even though I only have three movies to talk about other than our primary topic today, I liked all of them. Um, I, last year, towards the end of the year, when we first, or uh, maybe it's sort of close to when we first started doing these, I was going through a Child's Play rewatch. But of course, I was only able to watch one through three because I couldn't, and then Seed because Bride of Chucky was not on Netflix or any other service at that time. But it is now, baby. So I rewatched Bride of Chucky and I loved it. It was as great as I recall. Wonderful. I saw a movie that I know was one of your favorites, Brandon, which was Thoroughbreds. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. I remember when that one came out, you were very, very much in favor of Thoroughbreds. A couple of times you told me to watch it, and I, th there was nothing to hold me accountable, so I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't come up with this mechanism to like pin you to the wall. I thought it was great. I really enjoyed both of the lead performances. I liked the chilling nature of like the lack of emotion. I liked the sort of switcheroo of that at the end. I liked every bit of it. I have nothing but positive things to say. And then I also watched an A24 movie from a few years back called Free Fire. I don't know if either of you saw it. I saw that in the theater, yeah. Oh, really? What did you think? I liked it. It's kind of weird to me that it wasn't more of a hit just because of how many right? movie stars are in it. And it's just nonstop violence. Yeah. I think the way I described it at the time was like, it felt like I never wanted to see a gun fired in a movie ever again. Like, it pushes and pushes and pushes till you're, like, sick of watching it. Like, uh, when a parent makes you smoke an entire pack of cigarettes so you feel sick after. But I thought that was intentional and kind of fun. 
Well, I didn't necessarily have that same experience. I <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I I mean, I loved it. This was a movie that I saw the trailers for for probably 50 times. You know, obviously this was came out sort of during my movie pass days when I was going to see like two movies a week and every time you went to the draft house they would show a trailer for Free Fire just as they do for any A24 release. So I saw the trailer for this one like 50 times and then it came and went from theaters so quickly. Like I remember it came out and then it was maybe there were tickets for sale for maybe three weeks and then I, I didn't get a chance to see it. But it's on Netflix now so I checked it out and I thought it was delightful. It was one of those moments where my best friend and I were just scrolling, looking for something, and it was this constant like back and forth of like, oh, what about this? What's it about? Well, it's about this. And then you talk yourself out of watching it, because once you describe it to someone, it doesn't sound very interesting anymore, right? But I saw that Free Fire was there in my list, and I was like, oh, and I just turned it on. I was like, I'm making a decision, and you know, uh, super aggro, but but not really. I was just like, oh, let's watch this. So put it on. Um, did not tell my viewing companion what it was, <laughs> and you know, once it just becomes a feature length shootout, about 20 minutes in, she was like, oh, is is that what this is? Uh, okay, that's weird. But I thought it was great. I really loved it. I loved the. Um, the seventiesness of it. I know that he's uh, a horrible, horrible person, but I think that Army Hammer. This might be the best performance he gave back when he still had a career. Presuming that he's not going to have one anymore, which you know he's a rich white man, so you can never really count them out, no matter what they do. Killian Murphy's great in it. I really liked uh, Jack Rayner in this. I guess this was pre Midsummer. I don't know if it was pre Transformers Romeo and Juliet laws. But I thought that he was fun in this. And yeah, I I saw all three of those, Bride of Chucky, Free Fire, Thoroughbreds, reckoned them all with no disclaimers at all. If you're a human being, <laughs> I have no disclaimers about Bride of Chucky at all. Just just go and, and watch it. And of course, I also did watch Chicken People, which will be our forthcoming movie of the month in June. And I liked it. Yeah, I liked it too. I've been watching other chicken-themed content uh, because of that. I saw that on your social media, and I have been concerned. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to make sure that it was clear that I did enjoy it, because I know that based on my contribution to the Swamp Chat, it might not have seemed that way. Because as always, it was needlessly personal, um, and way too much about my childhood, like, like all my writing. But I did enjoy the movie. I, I would give it a recommendation. Well, I'm sorry in advance if I recommend more chicken-themed documentaries to you in the next few weeks, because uh, I have to follow that rabbit hole where it leads me. Oh, oh God. <laughs> Y'all are just getting weirdly specific, and I'm here for it. <laughs> what have you been watching? So, I also have not had a whole lot of time to watch movies. I've been, you know, figuring out my life, I guess. Slightly more important. But... I did watch at the recommendation of my husband, um, who is the master of digging up weird average 80s comedies that no one remembers and then making me watch them. <laughs> uh, we watched Crazy People. Never heard of that. Exactly. Thank Thomas for this one. So it is this like comedy from the 80s about this ad executive who has a nervous breakdown, goes into an institution and then discovers that mentally ill people are good at writing ads slash totally absurd at writing ads, which could come across, it does a lot of times come across as very exploitive. But, you know, it's also very, oh, mentally ill people are human beings that should be treated as such. Which was a surprising... Like, it was surprisingly not as problematic as I expected it to be. And it's pretty funny. It's got Dudley Moore and Daryl Hannah, which is, like, a weird love interest for Dudley Moore, I think. But, you know, it is what it is. Uh, it was a weird movie to have a love interest in a love subplot in the first place. 
Yeah, that's unnecessary. That's part of like it just being a weird average movie. Like it could have been more biting with fewer forced love plots and it would have been a great movie. Um, as is, you know, it's worth watching if only for some of these ridiculous ads that are featured in the movie that come across as pre-shit posts, I guess. Um, <laughs> it's pretty good in that way. And then last night, as part of a backyard movie with my neighbors, I watched The Lost Boys for the first time. Oh. Which I know, I know. Uh, and I obviously really enjoyed it, and I thought it was a whole lot of fun. I couldn't help but compare it to Near Dark in that it's like an 80s teen vampire movie, and I much prefer Near Dark. Sorry, everybody. But this one is definitely a lot more fun and a lot more, you know, it's, it's that genre of a young child trying to save its mother from a vampire, which is like a weird specific collection of movies. Like, I don't understand how that's the plot of so many movies. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you were just ribbing us for going down too specific of a rabbit hole for movie of the month. And um, the time we reviewed The Lost Boys for this podcast was we watched a movie of the month where the sexy sax man, Tim Capello, from that movie. Yes. Um, <laughs> we watched every single movie he was in because of some movie of the month we watched. He was like a drummer for like Bob Dylan's band. Um, oh my God. <laughs> in that film <laughs> so we ended up watching every single tim capello movie and obviously that's the crown jewel of that uh genre yeah <laughs> wow uh well speaking of like weird commercial parodies from crazy people i've watched two movies that have like a similar satirical bend to them but they're very different uh one's from 2019 and it's called little joe it's a very low-key sci-fi film um, it's about this woman who works at this like experimental hatchery for like plants, like a nursery for plants in like a laboratory setting. And they're developing this plant that makes you happy. Like it emits like a scent that chemically induces happiness in like the plant owner. But you have to like talk to it and like care for it for it to release this toxin. And because there's a great big flower show coming up the scientists are like pushing too hard to like make this plant like super effective and like ready for market soon uh which you know a big flower show is a pretty funny crisis for a uh for a sci-fi horror film so the movie has like this kind of like, <laughs> wry sense of humor she sneaks one of these plants home to her son because she is so interested in her job and, s and has so little interest in her teenager that she wants the plant to just keep him company and keep him happy while she's off like pursuing her career. And um, as you can guess, the plant is a little too potent and uh, turns basically her son and everyone else. It, it gets its pollen on into like kind of like invasion of the body snatchers kind of like riff where they're, they're kind of like themselves, but there's, they're these like hollow personality free drones who basically only live to serve the plant. Like, they're really invested in protecting the plant and making sure it can like pollinate and like reproduce. It's kind of a funny movie. It looks like a twee version of body snatchers, but it's like very low key. It's not, it's not really over stylized except for the way it looks. Um, but all the colors are really beautiful and it's got kind of a funny sense of humor about how little interest this woman has outside of her job. Like the fact that she doesn't even notice that her kid's personality is completely drained out of him until it's like way too late uh, is kind of like a source of humor, but it's also very slow and just kind of like eerie in the way of a lot of like indie horror movies are. So if you don't have the patience for it, it can be kind of annoying. What, what I found kind of interesting watching it right now is like it came out in 2019, like late in the year, like around December um, in America anyway, and it feels like it was just a few months too early because if it had come out like during COVID, like pandemic times, there was like a huge upswell of people all of a sudden buying houseplants as a kind of like... This just sounds like houseplant owning. Right. <laughs> Living to serve the plant. <laughs> I feel like people have been filling their homes with plants like as like almost a social surrogate. Like, so, like, the idea of these people talking to plants to make themselves happy 
uh, being like made into the sinister crisis in this film just reminded me a lot of like pandemic times. And I think if it had come out during the pandemic, there would have been more like the recommendations for it might have been a little more emphatic as like a movie of the times. It's currently on Hulu now, though. It's like more easy to access than ever. And it, it, it's really good if you have that patience for that kind of like eerie body snatchers riff. That sounds interesting. But the other one I watched along those lines is a lot more fun and a lot more in your face. Uh, it was The Stuff from 1985. Ooh, The yes, Stuff. The Stuff. I'm kind of surprised I didn't catch this. Uh, James and I did this like Larry Cohen episode a couple years ago where we watched like classic Larry Cohen movies. And I guess I kind of assumed I had seen this one before because, you know, its trailer was on like every schlock DVD and VHS I borrowed for like years. So just like through over familiarity with that, I felt like I had already seen the film and watching it. I was very wrong. Um, like I had not <laughs> experienced this beyond seeing it's like practical effects before kind of like the blob. It, it's villain is like this alien substance that uh, once consumed oozes out of people. It, it looks like the blob, but it also looks like yogurt, um, which it's kind of riffing on like eighties health food crazes and like overly processed foods. The reason I, kind of linked it to little Joe is it like, it's about this like company rushing to market this like craze product that um, has no federal regulation and uh, is in this movie, an alien beast that is like taking over the world. Mm-hmm. That is so delicious. Obviously in the case of the stuff, it's a lot quicker paced and Larry Cohen is making very overt um, jabs at like corporations like McDonald's and Coca-Cola and, you know, more fad foods from the era. There's a lot of like TV commercial parody in the film to the point where, you know, the, the body snatchers riff where people are turned into like stuff drones basically talk like they're in a TV commercial. And it's really creepy. <laughs> like that, uh, that version of acting has seeped out of the television in real life. But the thing that really won me over with this, it reminded me of our favorite movie when we did that Larry Cohen episode was Q the winged serpent because Michael Moriarty's performance in that movie is so unhinged and he's just as fun to watch in the stuff, but it's like completely different. He's doing this like version of Columbo and Foghorn Leghorn, like mixed. He's doing this like, Oh shucks. I'm just a you know simple Southern man. I don't really know what's going on here. I guess I'm just going to poke a few holes to see where this stuff comes from. <laughs> but really he's like trying to take down the corporations the entire time and like just playing stupid and simple. And that performance is just constantly weird. There's just like nothing like it. So in between the practical gore effects of this like white stuff oozing out of people, Michael Moriarty is like just as electric and fascinating to watch. I also watched They Live last night because uh, the stuff reminded us of it. And even that one, there's a lot of great scenes in that movie, and I really like it overall. But I don't think Roddy Piper is putting in a tenth of the like charismatic performance that Moriarty does in the stuff. Um, and I just appreciate the performance more and more the more I think about it. All right, you're going to need some lubricant for this vibrator. We've got KY and Lay Orgy Gel. Hey, you taste it, you're going to buy it, all right? The Lay Orgy Gel comes in lemon, mint, cherry, or trail mix. Trail mix? That's making a joke. So for this Lanyap episode of the Swamp Flicks podcast, I had Brandon and Allie watch the 1982 film directed by and starring Paul Bartel, Eating Raul, also starring Mary Warrenoff and Robert Beltran, and featuring cameo and minor appearances by Ed Begley Jr. and Edie McClurg, as well as John Paragon. Uh, in this film, Paul and Mary Bland, played by Paul Bartel and Mary Warrenoff, are a couple living in disgusting, seedy, horrible, crime-ridden 1982 <laughs> Los Angeles. And all they want is to start a little restaurant out in the country away from all of these horrible swingers and thieves and criminals and madmen and just men who can't keep their hands to themselves. And after a man who is attempting to go to a swingers party in Paul and Mary's building 
tries to have his way with Mary when she's alone at home and is interrupted by Paul, they realize how much money he had in his pocket and set out on a spree to get money from perverts <laughs> so that they can start their restaurant. And this plan is complicated by the arrival of a young man named Raul Mendoza, who is a locksmith as a cover for his uh, burglary. And he and Mary have a little bit of a relationship and her love for her, 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 asexual but extremely romantic love for her husband Paul is put to the test. I guess I'll just start off by saying when I was rewatching this, I did text Brandon to be like, oh, I kind of forgot about the omnipresent undercurrent of comical sexual danger that Mary is in for like the solid first half of the film. And I was like, oh, this actually probably should come with, with a trigger warning. But uh, you said something to me about Paul Bartel and John Waters that I thought was uh, very prescient. Oh, just I was thinking about him and like Almodovar, how like their movies are kind of grotesque, especially in their depictions of sexual violence for like comical effect. And it's so grotesque and so politically pointed. It's like making fun of that abuse of power to the point where it's like, not offensive somehow like they do this like magic trick where it's like made into such a grotesque caricature that you're just not offended by it it's like a cartoon there are a couple of moments where the sexual danger that mary is in gets a little too real very very briefly and i'm like ooh, oh uh. but for the most part it is offensive but i would say not um not harmful but again i, I guess i can only speak for myself but what did y'all think of the film I really, really enjoyed this one. It feels weird to say about a movie with, you know, as we just said, comical sexual violence, but I thought it was a lot of fun, and I definitely felt a lot of John Waters' energy here. (laughs) I'm mostly just shocked I haven't seen it before. Kind of like last time we talked about um, Castle Freak, I was like, this is just so within my wheelhouse that I have, like... Low-key embarrassed I haven't seen this, like, you know, minor cult film. (laughs) I was surprised. I was surprised to hear that you had not seen it. Well, the thing is, like, Paul Bartel is a huge figure in my, like, development as a film nerd. Like, I'm not the right kind of movie nerd in a lot of ways. Like, I kind of missed the boat on a lot of the things that people really care about. But Paul Bartel is, like, a big name for me. The same as John Waters, like... In high school and like early in college, uh, Death Race 2000, Private Parts, and especially scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills were all like big like taste-making discoveries for me as like a young movie nerd. And the funny thing about scenes from the class struggle is it's pretty much a spiritual sequel to this film. It has the same cast. I think the difference is that I got all of those movies through like bargain bin dvd purchases or like borrowed vhs cassettes from friends and this one was just out of print for like a long time a lot of paul bartell's movies that are readily available are roger corman productions and you know those make their way into distribution through the like sort of standard cult movie backwaters um eating raul is a 20th century fox production uh you would think it would be you know, a bigger deal because of that, but they let it go out of print because they really just didn't understand the value of this movie for a long time. Yeah. I think it didn't make it to DVD until like the mid two thousands. And then it wasn't until criterion cleaned it up. I think in the 2010s that it was like actually widely available. And I just honestly, you know, the way that we all have like a wealth of films that we all want to get to, and there's just too much to make any time for it. I really needed this like, impetus i needed someone to hold me accountable and say like hey you missed one (laughs) and uh i'm just very grateful for this conversation for making me finally watch this because it it really is just like so close to my heart and my tastes and i loved it it's a great film this movie is a treasure to me yeah i i am so fond of it the performances are so great i it's so funny and i i understand that there also is like if you were uninitiated or unaware of who Paul Bartel was, you might 
not realize that when he's talking about these dreadful perverts getting what they deserve, <laughs> that it's in jest. Because it, it could come across as being like actual, like uh, moralizing if you have no idea who Mary Warrenoff is or who Paul Bartel is, or if you miss a couple of those really quick blink and you miss it jokes in that opening uh, montage sequence where the there's the voiceover about Los Angeles. It's filthy. It's dirty. It's full of perverts and pimps and, you know, and a couple of those are intercut with like, you know, it's, it's children dropping a television on a man, which is funny, but also there's a, a woman who's trying to keep, she's got like a, a, a chain lock across her door, but there's like a bear's arm swatting at her <laughs> through yeah. the door. And then someone putting ketchup on, on an ice cream on sundae. Cream cone, yeah. It's, yeah, it's just, it's so much. They're so short and they're so brief that they kind of trick you where if you don't, if you don't notice them, you might not actually understand what the tone of this film is right from the outset, which I could see leading into some real uh, confusion later on. You know, it's like every time you go on Twitter and someone is saying some nonsense, like monogamy is relationship capitalism. And you're like, I don't, I don't know if this is. I don't know what your tone is. (laughs) It's like, is this a joke? Are, are you serious? And if you're serious, do you just want attention or do you believe this? I think there is some like self-deprecating truth to his positioning of himself in this film. Like he is the cuddliest of the like Roger Corman film school graduates. Uh, he has kind of this like wholesome throwback to like 1950s, you know, Americana kitsch about him, even though he would proudly count himself among the perverts that he's also satirizing. Like, I think there is like a a little bit of a self-deprecating, like I know I'm old fashioned in this like new perversion uh, wasteland that I'm living in. I feel like he's like targeting himself as well as he's targeting everything else in the film. Also part of that parody is like, you know, obviously he loves Mary Warnov and they work together all the time. And I think he's also poking fun at her sort of like natural persona by casting her as like an amateur dominatrix who's just naturally good in the role. Like, I think he's also poking fun at like what her natural default mode is as well by making her into like a domineering sexual figure who doesn't really know her full power. I I think there's a little bit of self-parody there as well. She's great. I mean, she's great in everything. I love her. I was watching um, all the like supplemental material on the Criterion channel, Uh um, which amazing that this movie was like hard to find for so long. And now you can watch like an hour of like interviews and behind the scenes (laughs) bullshit. Right. (laughs) It's such a gift. And she was kind of talking about how she's from this like East coast, Andy Warhol school of like experimental filmmaking and just rolling her eyes at like how unentertaining Warhol's movies became as he became full of himself. Like even the ones she was involved in. And then, you know, in these movies under Paul's creative hand, she can be as broad and as like over the top as she wants. And she like really leans into the camp in like a perfect way. Like I love her so much in these movies. I knew that she had been like a Warhol muse, but I, uh, that's like a blind spot for me, his work. Like I, I just, I've never seen really any of it other than like a couple of the big ones, like, you know. The blowjob or whatever it's called. Um, I also was really impressed by Susan Sager in this, who plays the actual real professional dominatrix, but it doesn't seem like she has done a lot. This was her first feature and she did a couple of things. I know, I guess she was in scenes from the class struggle and then didn't do anything again until like just within the past couple of years. But I thought she was really great in this. She had a lot of natural charm especially when you know you you first meet her and she's this like threatening literally domineering figure in like the life of this innocent man child who loves wine paul that we have come to know and perhaps love and then he goes to her house and she's like yeah i've got a kid he throws cheerios around here's some tips and she is so game for his (laughs) mind games with raul she's like yeah i'll be a nun yeah, I'll I'll be a nurse. Who cares? I'm ready for it. 
the movie is ultimately kind of sweet about sex work, even though it's like two protagonists are so icked out about it, especially in how it deals with her. Like, yeah, as the only like paid sex worker in the movie, they are really like sweet about her, which was really interesting to me. And I think kind of the joke of the movie, too, is like they're more into the sexual, you know, naughtiness than they're letting on. They start off the film like wearing matching pajamas and like sharing a chaste kiss before like going to bed and they're like separate twin beds. Um, <laughs> I don't mind a little hugging and kissing. <laughs> I like when he general when he uh, just gestures towards the rest of the room and he goes, "What are we gonna sell all our fabulous 1950s furniture?" <laughs> uh, yes, you know, mother only loaned that to us. But they're into the danger of the like sexual scenarios they set up more than they let on, I think. Some of them are annoying, like when she has to dress up as like a Nazi victim or like Minnie Mouse. She's like annoyed by how much theatricality goes into it. But um, <laughs> once they get into a rhythm where he's just bonking every you know male suitor on the head or every John on the head with a uh, frying pan, they get kind of into the like kink game of it. And I think I think you see that comfort with the routine in how they react to the dominatrix in general. Like they're like really just cheerful to see her at all times and um they see themselves as like a um like a peer in the trade. Like they see themselves as like doing the same work that she's doing, even though they're murdering people. Um it's kind of treated wholesomely in both respects. Because when they kill people, it's not bloody or gross in any way. It's like a cartoon. They just one bonk on the head from a frying pan and they're magically laid out to rest. One cartoonish clang and <laughs> bonk. bonk. I love the the squeamishness about using that frying pan for cooking again. <laughs> just absolutely great. The domesticity of their life with the, you know, when all those... I love their attempts to be what they consider to be normal people, which isn't normal at all. I mean, normalize what they're doing other than the murders, you know, listeners. Normalize everything but the murders. But the the way that they're just like, these people are getting on the elevator with them. This, this elevator is full of people who are just ready to like, you know, have a lot of unprotected sex with their neighbors. Uh, and they're just like, there's sort of revulsion at it in, as if the life that they have is somehow, you know, morally better. And they never even question for a moment whether or not they should murder these men. <laughs> they're just like, yep, they're perverts. They deserve to die. Like the, the, the dramatic irony of it is amusing. In addition to the fact that although their domestic life is very adorable, to us as the audience it's uh it's not normal necessarily either not any no. not any closer to i guess the baseline than or further from the baseline than their you know key partying neighbors it's so chaste it's perverse like they're doing something that's just wrong the matching pajamas to me is so like de-sexed yeah uh that was really the the cherry <laughs> on top there yeah <laughs> And they're like brown too. <laughs> her setting her little stuffed animals on her chest for the night and him pulling out his giant stuffed wine facsimile bottle. of a wine bottle. Uh, adorable. Yeah. I think that they had just enough pun uh, on their last name of bland. You know, oh, we're going to sell the bland enchilada. The bland, bland enchilada. I think that they used just enough of that for it to be funny and not overbearing because that's a, a joke that could really be run into the ground i also <laughs> loved the dog food commercial in the middle of it speaking of commercial parodies yeah. yeah i really just was very reminded of cheddar goblin just all over <laughs> again <laughs> like hell yeah that is all i could think about it is cheddar goblin or the stuff it's or delicious the stuff. yeah it's delicious you think of you know la as being like uh, LA and New York as as the big cultural centers, but also as the big advertising centers, right? Like they shoot all the commercials out in LA, so it is just another commentary on like Los Angeles is filthy and there's ketchup ice cream and you know I I love I love that that was Paul's attitude or at least the attitude that he wanted to portray with this 
it reminded me a lot of the opening to um, Lady in a Cage. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because at the beginning of Lady in a Cage, you know, it's the the people on the radio listening. Uh, the people are listening to, you know, whatever the contemporary analog of like OANN was at the time. It's like a radio evangelist talking about how science is saying that they're making progress with these rockets and these vaccines, but when will there be a vaccine against sin? And it's like played over in earnest, a montage of just like uh, people doing things that are, you know, heinous. Like the, the one image that we talked about when we talked about it before was the little girl just rubbing her roller skate over and over again over a dead body. And this is almost like a parody of that, where it's like bears trying to break into apartments. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think that that really was a great uh, choice as far as an opening, especially because you immediately go to uh, Paul at work and, <laughs> and there's almost a robbery, but it turns into a, a, a really unconcerned manslaughter almost immediately. Part of what's funny about that, like this whole world's going to shit kind of fear-mongering that's it's parodying is like how big of a problem was swinger culture in the 80s you know like i think of that as such like a early 70s trend that i don't know that it was as rampant and as like like this sort of like free love movement had definitely turned into something else by the time this movie was made and distributed <laughs> um, yeah i think the other thing about this movie though is just the timelessness. Like, obviously, we've talked about 50s Americana kitsch, but, you know, there's also the 70s kitsch, and there's just... It's like a a greatest hits of moralizing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Which is... It's delightful. It's like, when does this movie take place? Who knows? But filth is ruining the world. Yeah, like Ed Begley Jr.'s um, hippie John who wants to like smoke doobies and listen to Hendrix over like ink blot projections as like his, you know, sexual <laughs> kink. Um, that feels like a kitsch version of the like free love swinging culture that they're supposedly, you know, disgusted by, but it's such a parody of that aesthetic that it, it just like points out how outdated the thing they're afraid of is like, they're afraid of something that's kind of crested, uh, you know, well before the movie even starts. Yeah, I I mean, sadly, uh, Nazism has returned, but the <laughs> that that those ink blot projections were uh, super fun. I kind of imagine if you were if it's nineteen eighty two and you don't even have a VCR, having something like that probably would be about as far out <laughs> as you could get. Yeah, and and Ed Begley Jr. has made such a career out of that uh, character too. That it really works. Because you know that man is a hippie, you know? <laughs> I recently rewatched his episode of Party Down, uh, where he takes boner pills at like a swingers party for uh, geriatrics. Uh, and he's like trying to relive his hippie days in that episode. It's it's very in line with this movie. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you had just rewatched his episode of Voyager. Oh, no, I definitely oh. <laughs> Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. I mean, we should probably talk I, about I Star was Trek. I say, we probably should talk about Star Trek at some point because of Robert Beltran being amazing in this. I was trying to figure out how to do like a misdirect where I was like, we need to talk about Star Trek. Let's talk about Ed Begley Jr. on Star Trek Voyager. And it just wasn't, there wasn't a way to make it work. I had no idea he was on that show, so that was shocking information to me. Yeah, he's in a time travel episode early on in the show, which yeah. also, it's a two-parter where Voyager goes back to L.A. in the 90s. Yes, and, he's and like a Sarah mogul. Silverman. Yeah, Sarah Silverman's in that episode as well. Yeah. Wow. I love that episode so much. <laughs> it's so bad, and I love it so much. At one, at one, point, at one point, Lieutenant Torres gets kidnapped by doomsday preppers yes you gotta check it out brandon you yeah you do have to watch those episodes i mean why can't we can we just uh do that for our next lanyard well, <laughs> the plan is working yeah let me drop a um small star trek trivia you know so i could feel like i'm part of the gang <laughs> i watched the uh 
you know, the Criterion supplementary material. It was pretty boring, just kind of interviews and like, you know, anecdotes about the movie. Um, his name's Robert Beltran, is that right? Yeah. He was talking about how the last time he saw Paul, Paul was directing something on the same studio lot as him. And the Star Trek crew, like the um, the other cast members were like, you know, Paul Bartell. And they like went to lunch with him and he like, you know, kind of like held court and like told stories. I guess they were all Death Race 2000 fans because I guess that was like his biggest hit. Um, but he got to like be like kind of king for a day and like t- took the Star Trek cast out to lunch and like told them anecdotes from his like glory days. That sounds so lovely. That sounds amazing. He's not a well-celebrated auteur, I don't think. Like he he's his name doesn't really come up as much as it should, you know. Among people like Waters and Al- Almodovar, like he's just as highly stylized. You recognize his sense of humor just as quickly. It's just he didn't get to make as many movies and, you know, their cult status is a little a little murkier, I think. There's a lack of the full-on deviance that would uh, give him the same <laughs> would stain the pop cultural landscape in the same way that John Waters has, right? Like, this is a movie that's about perverts and there's the, you know, casual comedic sexual danger but at no point was it like watching Desperate Living where it's like I feel like I'm gonna fucking vomit, you know? <laughs> like, he, he didn't there's nothing in this movie that's as indelible as that even though i think it's hilarious and it's one of the best comedies of the 80s you don't dare people to watch this the same way you dare people to watch like pink flamingos or something right yeah yeah i do want to kind of talk about like what i expected this movie to be um speaking of like a dare film and like their restaurant plan for like shay's bland and the dog food parody the dog food commercial parody and like us knowing where that meat comes from. Right. I, you know, I wanted to see this movie for a very long time and I feel like over the years I knew it was about two, it was about a couple who find a way to an unconventional way to fund their restaurant. I expected this to be a cannibal comedy. Like I thought that was going to be the whole movie, especially just with that title eating Raul. Um, It is not that movie. It's something it's way more about like sex culture and like the dominatrix stuff and like the swinging than it is about eating people, which I'm sure was disappointing to audiences at the time as well. I don't know. I don't know that it was billed that way necessarily. Was it like, was it promoted no as a cannibal comedy? Cause I will be honest. <laughs> I didn't watch the trailer or anything for it to see how it was advertised in its time. But I did know that there was cannibal in, cannibalism in it because I had read a Joe Queen an essay about it when I was like 15 that mentioned this film as like a rise in cannibal comedy in the wake of, or uh, another film as a rise in cannibal comedy. And this was cited as like an early example of it. But it, there was less of it than I thought there would be the first time. But yeah, there's really only cannibalism at one point. It's at the end. It's, it's much more in line with the other 20th Century Fox, you know, um, shock movies of the 70s and 80s, like Beyond the Valley of the Dolls or like Meyer Breckenridge when they were trying to like push taboos. Um, that stuff is all about like swinging sex culture. This movie's just way late for that wave. So I guess that's why I didn't really catch on. Yeah. I mean, uh, intentionally late for the wave even. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a joke. <laughs> so I wanted to mention this. I remembered that there was a 90s movie that was a like a cannibal movie, like a, a comedic, a black comedy about cannibalism that came out in the 90s, and I couldn't remember the title of it. All I remembered was that Cameron Diaz was in it. Now, the movie is called The Last Supper. It's from 1995. I've never seen it, but I did track down the title so that I could try and read a little bit more about it and, and see it if I can get a hold of it. But what happened is I searched Google for <laughs> Uh, Cameron Diaz Cannibal, and I don't know if you guys know about this, but in 2013, there was a cop who was on trial for cannibalism named Gilberto Valley. He told a shrink that after watching Cameron Diaz's big screen debut when he was a kid in which she is tied up, it sparked his life of sexual deviancy. So I was, I initially was unable to locate the name of this Cameron Diaz cannibal comedy, because if you just search for Cameron Diaz cannibal, 
it turns up a New York Post story about <laughs> this cop, uh, in which it you know it gives a basic description of um, Cameron Diaz being tied to a coconut tree <laughs> with a bomb placed at her feet. Jesus. The Last Supper is the name of the movie. <laughs> if you want to track it down <laughs> with Cameron Diaz and Annabeth Gish and Courtney B. Vance and some like uh, supporting roles from Bill Paxton, Mark Harmon, Jason Alexander. But in that one, the plot is that uh, basically these like, you know, five 90s liberals are one of them um, is assisted by a guy in like changing their tire or something. And so they invite him to dinner and he turns out to be like a neo-Nazi. So they kill him, but then they decide to just keep doing that in much the same way that Paul and Mary just kind of (laughs) decide to keep uh, killing people and eating Raul. And that was kind of the reason I was trying to track that down. But I did want to share that anecdote about that horrifying thing that I learned about Cameron Diaz's inspiration. It's not her fault, of course, but yeah. I know like having millions of dollars is like a comfort in a lot of ways, but being famous must be fucking terrifying, especially if you're a woman. Jesus it's Christ. so unappealing. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. The idea of being famous is so horrible. I don't even want to be... F- <laughs> That's why I don't even want people to contact me whenever you were like saying, hey, email us at Swamp Flicks. I was like, don't contact me. I'm terrified <laughs> of, even, of, of even the smallest amount of fame that could come from doing this podcast. If we get like a couple dozen more listens than usual in an episode, I'm like, what the fuck happened? Oh no! <laughs> oh like no! A mild moment, like a okay? panic. Please don't do it. Don't talk to us. <laughs> <laughs> Did, were there any other favorite moments that anybody wanted to to talk about, other than you know the things we've already said, and also once again to reiterate the wonderful scene at the end when Howard Swine, who's who's hosting the swingers party, another guest cast member from Rock and Roll High School. Yeah, he's he's part of that, I guess, production posse of this group because he was also in Death Race two thousand. Oh yeah, like, that's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But he's he's doing this. He gives this horrible, horrible introduction of himself that because he's like a radio jockey or whatever, some sort of host where he wanted to say all these perverted things and wasn't able to. And although I did not watch all of the interviews, I uh, was looking to see what additional material there was on the Criterion channel. I I watched the interview with Mary and Paul and I watched the gag reel and I saw how many times he failed to deliver that little boastful <laughs> monologue. Um, but the scene at the end when he is like, well, if you're not going to party, either, you know, you better take your clothes off and get in this hot tub or leave. And, so, and Paul, Paul just straight up picks up a giant space heater or like a bug zapper something and just tosses it into the hot tub and just like (laughs) you know 15 people uh play electrocution and then collapse and it's the funniest fucking thing (laughs) and yet somehow isn't even the funniest thing in this movie i yeah i mean there's just so many moments in this movie that it's like how do you pick a favorite but yeah i feel like we still haven't appreciated uh Robert Beltran and like his like stereotypical Chicano like macho man act that he does. Um, Those red suspenders, so yeah, his red suspenders the whole time. Uh, it's just so great. That's another thing, like the sexual assault that could come off like super offensive in the wrong hands. I mean, maybe it is. I don't know, but um, he makes a meal out of that role. I um, mean, he feels just as important as you know Paul and Mary. Yeah, like there's a three main cast members between the three of them. Maybe even the dominatrix is up there with them as well. But he he is on equal footing with them, even if the movie like does play with stereotypes. Also, I guess we we can all admit it. Robert Beltran is a babe in this movie. I was gonna say he can build me a hot tub on a deserted <laughs> planet. <laughs> If you remember the Voyager episode I am referencing. <laughs> yeah, of course I do. Yeah, he's like, yeah. I'm going to build you a headboard, Catherine. Oh, my God. And Catherine's just like, I'm, <laughs> Jamie's just like, no, I'm going to chase around this monkey all day. I remember <laughs> it very clearly, as you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also um, partial to the hostile 
dildo salesman in this film. Yes. He's just yelling yes. at Paul about lube, um, the different flavors of lube that he sells, and is trying to pressure him to make a decision on the spot of what flavor of lube he wants. Um, and this is a man who like can't think about um, swingers for more than 10 seconds without melting down. <laughs> that seems very funny. That would be such a great audition script like (laughs) to be able to deliver it at that speed at that pace you can tell that he's an ethical pervert right from the start because his very first line is like get that kid out of here he's not 18 get him the fuck out of here he's like all right (laughs) we've got these dildos you see and there's (laughs) they're as big as the empire state building it's just like yeah so good that's some of the best kind of like B movie performances. It's just the unnecessarily hostile uh, <laughs> side character. You'll see it all over the place in like John Waters movies or in um, Sleepaway Camp. Like how everyone's just dialed to eleven, angry for no reason. Always funny to me. Yeah, I call that the Kolchak factor because <laughs> that's the, <laughs> that's what's always happening on Kolchak too. Everywhere he goes, everybody has a pre-established, has a pre-existing relationship with him and hates his fucking guts. <laughs> The porn salesman is great. I loved Paul uh, on the top of Raul's van. Oh, oh that yes. sequence is hilarious! What a what a great what a great visual. That's a Looney Tunes gag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what makes this movie not be as like dirty and gross and disturbing as as it could be. Is that it's really it's just Looney Tunes. You know, it's just Pepe Le Pew, but not even as threatening as Pepe Le Pew almost in a lot of ways. And that's why he couldn't make this movie with Corman is Corman was mad at him for constantly injecting humor into these movies. Like Corman wanted death race 2000 to be a blood and tits movie. And Paul Bartel does not make those kinds of films. Um, So he had to go shop it around. Corman didn't know how good he had it. Oh my God. I, I mean, kudos to Roger Corman for all that he did and for all the careers that he started. But man, how could you not see what lightning in a bottle this guy was, you know? It's funny, like, the way that people talk about Corman is, like, he'll give you all the opportunities you want as long as you fill, like, a certain criteria of what he's looking for. But there is a point where you, like, outgrow that little box. Like, you're like, I want to do something else that isn't the Corman formula. I want to, like, you know, inject some jokes where I get to, like, hang around on the top of this van like I'm, you know, like I'm Pepe Le Pew, you know, chasing down... <laughs> the cat uh, on top and of he won't let me so you know i have to leave this like nest and go find funding elsewhere and unfortunately bartell you know didn't have that many opportunities to do that uh he made a few movies i'm making it sound like he didn't make enough movies he probably made like six or seven films over the course of his career but we really deserve twice that amount and you know with twice the budget yeah not nothing but you know would have been nice to see more. Yeah. There was, of course, for a long time, discussion of a sequel to this one, which unfortunately obviously ended when uh, he passed away. And Mary also... Mary, Mary's still alive, I guess, but she hasn't done anything in a while. She said she was actually embarrassed of her acting work for a long time and just more proud of her like visual artistry and like all these other like interests that she has. And she was kind of shocked going to like film conventions to go sign stuff for like cult weirdos like us um, that people remembered all these roles and lines that she had. And she's like, Oh, I guess people kind of respect this stuff that I thought was just, you know, a goof. Her night of the comet is where she's really kind of giving it the most drama. And yet it's still, it's still campy and great. I will say um, scenes from the class struggle is more or less a sequel to this film. I have not seen that since high school. Cause it's also, got a dodgy distribution history so i don't know how well it holds up in comparison to this but i found it funny in the exact same way that i found this movie funny all right i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to track it down uh because i've never seen it and that sounds great yeah i haven't seen it either so i'm i'm there i remember someone misquoting gertrude stein in that movie where they're talking about the the character like reveals themselves as bi in the movie and someone else seems shocked by it and they're like well a mouth is a mouth is a mouth and uh, for some reason, as like a 15-year-old, I found that endlessly funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say, I, was tr- I did try to find, not for publication, a couple of years ago. Even when Vulcan Video was still open, it didn't seem like it was possible to find it. But I do think that I found a, a wink-wink copy of it. 
uh, somewhere. I don't know, but that was the one he did right after this, which that one's like a, I guess a tabloid reporter comedy. So, you know, I'm into that. I haven't seen that. I I own a a DVD of private parts, Uh which should also come with its own litany of trigger warnings. Mm. Um, And by finding out what those are, you kind of spoil the movie. Uh, mm. If you really care about the plot, so I don't know that one. That one is closer to what you would expect out of like a dare film. Like that one is closer to his like grimier, like his Pink Flamingos or whatever. It's more of like a Corman exploitation picture, okay. but it is very good. Maybe not as silly as some of these other ones. It's a little grimier, but it's him doing like a psychological horror film, and it's really fun. I'll see if I can find a copy of that somewhere now that now that things are starting to open again. Yeah. It is problematic. I'll put that out there. But I guess all these movies are if you look at them in broad strokes. I appreciate the heads up. Yeah. And talking about these sorts of films and, you know, campy and dare films, like, I think there's a certain amount of, and I'm not saying like, oh, no, they're not problematic. But I think there is like a certain amount of context you have to go into them with. Like, there's a certain amount of, yeah, it's problematic but it's also a satire of this problematic thing or yes it's problematic but you know it's all in the intent and the tone in a lot of ways and I feel like we're losing more and more of that ability to be in that gray zone of uncomfortable as you know more and more people have the internet unfortunately it's a blessing and a curse of yeah Yes, we have freedom and access of information. And oh, no, that means people are on the Internet. <laughs> There's a kind of freedom in exploitation filmmaking that I think we all appreciate where you go into a lot of movies like this and you know you will be offended morally. And it's probably a good thing that you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... <laughs> Knowing that the movie is trying to shock, you kind of like open yourself up to it being able to explore and talk about topics that no one else wants to touch. I feel like there are a lot of like taboos and a lot of like just sort of like basic human things about life that you just never see in the movies because people don't want to touch them. They're like hot wire subjects Mm -hmm. and exploitation filmmaking as you know, troublesome as a lot of it can feel. It's also very freeing. It's like, Oh, we can finally talk out in the open about, you know, this dominatrix mom and like how that doesn't like her sex work doesn't define her life. And she's just kind of a normal person. Like you don't see that character in very many movies, at least not with this kind of like flippancy, the way she's presented here. And I, I don't know. I, I think that's a large reason why I kind of dwell in that area of filmmaking. Like there's just a lot of subjects I want to see on the screen. And this is the only place I can find them, especially when it comes to sex. <laughs> A lot of people are scared to touch sex in general. Uh, I I don't think I would have liked this movie as much if it was a pure cannibal comedy the way I expected it to. I love that it was a, like a sex satire. Right. Like that, that put it even more squarely mm-hmm. in my wheelhouse. Well, I am glad that I was able to bring something that got a universal acclaim from, from this group of weirdos that I'm proud to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny when I'm like trying to think of like a concise way to describe the show i'm like yeah it's just like friends recommending films to each other but like the specifics of what friends and what movies um (laughs) really narrows that field to something much stranger than that sounds maybe well next week on this show we are going to talk about broader classics uh and normal well-respected films we're doing like a cinematic blind spots episode Based on a recent reveal to me that James has never seen Citizen Kane, he wanted to finally watch and discuss that. Oh, uh, yeah. Wow. We all picked kind of like big name classics like that that we had never seen before. Kind of stemming from recently me watching Vertigo for the first time, I think is how that came about. And in the meantime, if you want to recommend films to us as a listener, do not contact Boomer, but you can contact me via email at swampflex at gmail.com. And I don't know, maybe I'll read your recommendation on the show. You cannot make me watch a film the way that uh, Ali and Boomer have the power to, but uh, I'll read it out loud. Is that, is that something <laughs> that you <laughs> yeah. want to hear? I don't know. I mean, I, I might watch it. You might make me yeah. watch a film. So, If you make a compelling enough case, yeah. why not? Bye, everybody. Bye. Good night, everybody. You gotta jump up, let's get your feet up.
Cause it's damn, mommy, I'm just damn, damn, damn.